Hi, I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy from Keshe Podcasts, two Jews on the news. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Yonit. No shortage of news, I think it's fair to say. I think that's an understatement, and I have I have a dramatic thing to say. Are you ready? Oh, wow. More news. I'm done. Breaking news. <laughs> Breaking news, exactly. Don't steal my line, Jonathan. I, uh, I'm done. I'm done with Israeli politics. I can't take it anymore. The high drama, the low politics, the last-minute hurdles, the waiting until the middle of the night, the intense negotiations. I'm done. I'm done. No more election crisis. No more... Uh, not being able to answer the question, are we going to go to elections forever? Enough. I'm moving to Denmark. That's it. We'll have <laughs> to fit to the Denmark. podcast accordingly, if that's okay with you. So it will be a new podcast from Denmark. Why Denmark? Just because it seems more boring. <laughs> but if you want, no, we could I... do Sweden or Finland. Or would it just, just point at some place and we we'll could. move there. We could do our own podcast. It could be two Nords on the fjords. <laughs> A pair of us, although we're not, we'll have to be two non-Nords. Exactly. <laughs> Good luck convincing anyone that you and I are Nordic. I mean, I, I don't just... think we're of Nordic. Stock. Wait a minute. I mean, there's um, a well, Viking invasion huge. in England in the ninth or tenth century. You could be uh, the Friedlands of Oslo. I mean, I just, I, this could work. This could work. You may be overestimating the longevity of the Friedland family roots in this country. <laughs> but that is quite big news. But listen, any moving away and walking away from covering Israeli politics, you're going to have to delay at least half an hour or 40 minutes because we have to talk about it. It has been okay. so massive what's been going on. Although I've been counselling everyone in a way not to get too carried away because, as I think we've said before on this podcast, when it comes to Israeli politics and particularly the prime ministership of Benjamin Netanyahu, it is never over until it's over. Indeed. Look, I don't think it's uh, hyperbole. This has been one of the most dramatic 24 hours leading up to a formation of a government. And as you say, we are not there yet. But for the first time in 15 years, uh, someone who isn't Bibi Netanyahu managed to call up the president and say, I have formed a government. Um, so as we are saying, it's a government on paper for now. It's still on very shaky legs. Netanyahu is still the prime minister if you open up the newspaper and expect it to see another headline. Um, the proposed government has to survive a confidence vote in the Knesset in 12 days. 12 days is eternity in Israeli politics. We just had a war with Gaza that lasted for 11 days. So that schedule could shrink a little bit. We have to say it depends whether the newly formed almost government manages to replace uh, the Speaker of uh, the House on Thursday, it emerged they might not even have a majority to do that. So just to be very accurate on where we are right now, Naftali Bennett is specifically is going to need to keep his party together long enough to be sworn in as the next prime minister. That's a pretty big if. It's a pretty big if, but I've got to say, we if if we you know if somebody deserves a slap on the back for prescience and prophecy. It is you yourself, Yoni Levy, because as listeners to Unholy know, uh, if they've been listening to every episode, this was you, and not only before all this happened, this was you before even the last election happened. This is you from mid-March before those Israeli elections even happened. Now, I want to talk about the crazy scenario. Are you ready for that? Are you sitting down? Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. So you called it, Yoni. You saw this scenario and, you know, it, you thought it was crazy. That was the word you used. And yet it is, uh, like we say, we're not going to say it has come to pass, but it is almost there. The one thing I was wrong about, and I think this is essential, the situation wasn't 
that Naftali Bennett was sitting like uh, Hamlet, right? Trying to decide between, oh, should I go with Bibi and his government or should I go with my own sort of anti-Bibi bloc? No, he had to wait for Netanyahu to fail first to have this sort of legitimacy to go his own way, to detach himself from his mentor and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, uh, make this government. And we'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about Yair Lapid, but what they have managed to do here, Lapid and Bennett, is kind of to out, they out BB'd BB. They, they used his own tricks against him. In what way? What are the tricks? Well, I mean, they waited, for example, the way that he gave, and we'll talk about this, right? He gave the Arab, uh, the United Arab List, Ram. He was the first one who tried to woo them and court them and, and legitimize them after years of delegitimizing the Arab vote. And only when he failed could they get the green light to go forward. The fact that he, in his oh, I, desperation, wanted uh, Bennett to go first in rotation, even though Bennett only has six seats, gave uh, Bennett himself the legitimacy to say, okay, well, if you gave me that offer, I can be a prime minister with only six seats. Now, I think um, it's absolutely right that the author of this coalition, if it comes together, is none other than Bibi Netanyahu himself. Uh, that he created this monster, as he must feel it now is. Uh, he's the Dr. Frankenstein here, partly for the reason you said, and I know we're going to get onto it, but legitimating uh, Mansour Abbas's Ra'am party and Islamist party as a legitimate partner of government. That was on him because he began playing footsie with, with uh, Mansour Abbas and with Ram even again before the election. But also, if you look at three of the key right-wing figures in this constellation, uh, Naftali Bennett, we're going to be talking about him, Gidon Saar, people uh, know much less about him outside Israel, and Avigdor Lieberman, all three of them at some point were allies, colleagues, even real um, sort of partners of uh, Netanyahu. And all of them he burnt, you know, by by um, not actually bringing them along, keeping them on side, but instead turning them into, as it's turned out, implacable enemies. I mean, these are people who could not be placated even from partnering up with what would actually be their natural home, the, the centre-right, the right, Likud, instead they have teamed up on the other side. That is on Bibi. That is down to him. And, you know, you look at through the whole constellation to get this incredibly motley crew, this disparate bunch, ranging from our friendly Islamist dentist at one end through to the you know a Jewish nationalist and former settlers leader like Naftali Bennett via Meretz and the and the traditional Zionist left, the Labour Party. What's the only thing these people have in common? I mean, really, these are people who wouldn't, you know, you couldn't get to agree on ordering food in a restaurant together, this group of people. The one thing they have in common is they can't stand Netanyahu and they want him out. And that is on him. That's down to him. This is like if you, you know, try and give a metaphor for American politics, Hillary Clinton, Elizabeth Warren, I guess uh, the ghost of Richard Nixon and George W. Bush trying to get together to oust Donald Trump. Right. This is how. Yeah, And I think you can throw in the leader of the Black Panthers. I would throw in the leader of the Black Panthers and Pat Buchanan. Yep, I and mean, that's how, that's it's, how it's it fits, everyone. right? This is what this the, the, this group is 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 trying to do. We keep going back to Mansour Abbas, and I think it's it's important to kind of pause on that for a minute. This is an historic threshold, right? For the first time in the history of this country, there will be 
a party, an Arab party, as a coalition partner in the Israeli government, if indeed this government is formed. And you saw that picture captured yesterday, that key moment in the negotiations, Mansour Abbas, the leader of the United Arab List, partnering with Naftali Bennett, a very right-wing politician who who is more to the right of, of Netanyahu himself, and of course, Yair Lapid. Now, you have to remember that Abbas is coming under as much pressure from his constituency as Bennett and Shaked are from, from there. I mean, he has, in this act, legitimized the Zionist entity. That's a huge step forward. It's not only that uh, the Jewish part of, of uh, Israeli politics pushed away the Arabs all these years. It was also a two-way street. So this is a big a big deal. I, I think what, in, in a sense, he's saying without saying it is basically, look, we know the Jewish state is a done deal. Now let's get a better deal for us. Let's work on better funding, better conditions, better laws to fit our our society. And, you know, this this amazing moment here, we were on air for a gazillion hours yesterday, and, like, Israel's waiting for the green light for Abbas to join the government, right? We're waiting all day. There's this chiron on air, awaiting the Shura Council's decision, the Supreme Religious Council of the Islamic Movement. This is, this is a moment. And even if this government is informed, it's still, I think, a way that we can't walk back. But I need to, we need to stress this. This is not uh, the liberal, secular party. It's the Islamist party. It's not going to be Woodstock. It's going to be a very complex government to try and, and manage. Yeah, I, I saw that, the waiting on the Shura Council, the supreme religious body. And you think, when is the last country outside Iran <laughs> where you're waiting on the word of the supreme kind of clerics and theologians of an Islamist movement? And yet, of course, the one place in the Middle East where that's happening is in Israel. And if, if, if Jewish Israeli voters do not balk at that prospect and reject mm-hmm. it, but actually sort of shrug it off... Mm-hmm. That, to me, is a huge milestone for all the reasons you've said. I found the picture actually unexpectedly moving. I mean, you know, there's the it's all men. They're all men in a kind of smoke-filled room. It's kind of political operatives are in the background. Um, Mansour Abbas, the dentist, has got these kind of guts spilling out. He's a really, you know, he's got a, he's a big guy. And, and Lapid and Bennett... But this, the mo- the normal, the normalization, the normality of that image uh, of doing political business, you know, there is a reason why people say, you know, just covering Israel gives you a kind of whiplash. Just two weeks ago, uh, you and I were talking not only about the war uh, over and with Gaza, but the intercommunal violence that was happening in Israel cities on the streets of Lod or Batyam or Haifa or wherever where Arab and Jew were taking up arms against each other, and you thought, how can this country even possibly hold together if this is its future? And here we are a fortnight later, where, not as you said, not just you know an, in, an Arab individual, and that obviously has happened in Israel's history, an actual Arab-Israeli party is signing on the dotted line. I found myself looking at that page of signatures yep. and just really lingering over Mansour Abbas's signature. I think it's something very powerful. Obviously, mm-hmm. the document's in Hebrew. He's putting an, you know, the Islamist seal mm-hmm. on what is inherently a Zionist document, yep. meaning a governing document of the state of Israel. It's, it's very powerful, yep. and it means that maybe... You know, often with Israel, you think it is two steps, one step forward, two steps back. And, you know, the horrible violence we saw inside Israel itself was 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 more than 
two or three steps back. But this does feel, as you say, even if it doesn't come to fruition, like a step forward. Yeah, and, and, and I just have to remind us that uh, during those uh, few days after what happened in Lod, Mansour Abbas himself went to a synagogue uh, that was uh, set on fire and he said, we're going to help fix this. So that, I think, resonated for many uh, Israelis. And again, we're coming back to this. Netanyahu is the one who, le- who legitimized this move. He failed to do it because he also was uh, uh, busy pulling into his coalition the extreme right that didn't want to sit with Mansour Abbas. So he failed, but he gave the green light to uh, Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid in doing this. So we should talk about the man who, if this all comes to pass, will in fact be the prime minister, as you predicted, uh, and we've heard you predict it. This is why you've got to stay listening with Unholy. You are going to be months ahead of what happens. Um, Wait, lottery so numbers? Bennett what do you himself, need, Jonathan? What do you need? Uh, so Naftali Bennett, it's so interesting. You've explained this bit, the bizarre bit of Israeli math, I think you call it, whereby you can have just six seats and yet you get to be prime minister, even when some of your coalition partners, one in particular, has way more seats than you. I think the, uh, the explanation you gave when we had our little tutorial in Israeli math was that that, is, that was going to be his price. It was the only way... Mm-hmm that the coalition would come together uh, is was if he played not only kingmaker but king. Yep. And so that is the price. So, Jonathan, this whole political limbo gets uh, people quite confused, myself included, uh, I must add. So we've also had a lot of people reach out to us with questions. Among them is uh, this listener that I think uh, you may know. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Unit. It's David Remnick from The New Yorker calling from New York, and I've got a question for you. Seven or eight years ago, I went to Israel to do a long reporting piece on the rise of the religious nationalists in politics, obviously something that wasn't new, but something increasingly powerful, and Naftali Bennett was at the head of it. And he was already making trouble for Netanyahu, and obviously he's no friend to the left. And now here he is on the cusp of becoming the prime minister And back then, seven, eight years ago, he made it very plain, very, very plain that he had no intention of ever allowing or supporting any form of a two-state solution, any form of a Palestinian state. And I wonder, has he changed at all on this issue? That's my question. So you need David Remnick himself, the editor of The New Yorker, perhaps the world's most admired journal in the English language that publishes weekly, I hasten to add, as a loyal Guardian columnist. Um, David Remnick asking that question, uh, and I think a lot of people do, I have got that on their mind, almost the who is Naftali Bennett question. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I remember that piece uh, by uh, uh, David. He wrote it uh, in 2013, just before the elections. It's a great piece because it really describes who, who Naftali Bennett is and who Ayala Chaket is. For sure, Naftali Bennett is a, is a hardliner uh, in, regarding the Palestinians, for sure. And, and the pivotal argument in Israel in recent years, which is the conversation about uh, the Supreme Court, right? He thinks there are too many uh, liberal judges on the, in the High Court of Justice, and so does she. Uh, the question is, has he fundamentally changed his worldview the answer is, the short answer is no. Uh, but I think that Bennett grew up. Remember, he he started out, and you mentioned this, he worked for Netanyahu, basically as chief of staff. Uh, he started out like that. He had admired him. He came from startup. He was this new kid on the block. And and some, somewhere along the line, he grew this ambition to become prime minister. I, th- I think what, what happened to him in the past year especially is realizing that he thought the continued reign of Netanyahu after 12 years 
was bad for the country. And also he severed his ties to the rabbis. Remember, he comes from a religious Zionist niche party. He severed ties to the rabbis. He severed ties to the extreme part of his of, of his party. And, and, and he grew up in that way. Now, remember one of the smartest things ever said by an Israeli politician, Ariel Sharon, when he became prime minister, he said, the things we see from here, from the prime minister's office, we don't see from opposition. And of course, Sharon changed, you know, who would have thought the architect of the settlements would become the person to disengage from Gaza. I'm not saying that Naftali Bennett is Ariel Sharon. I think they have a very different character, for better or worse. But things can change when you become, when you actually become prime minister, we have to see if he has even enough political clout to keep his party together just to pass that threshold. It's so interesting you mentioned Ariel Sharon because I've been thinking about him for this reason, which is that there have been uh, posters, photoshopped images by uh, generated by uh, anti-Bennett uh, people and people who are who want Netanyahu to stay as prime minister, depicting but these are it's now a trope. I mean, people, it's very familiar where you d- Photoshop the face of an Israeli politician in the kafir of the Palestinians, and you brand them as a traitor or a liar, or whatever. It happened famously to Yitzhak Rabin in the lead up to his assassinate, assassination in 1995, and they've been doing it again to Bennett. But the person I thought of in between those two was Sharon, because they did it with Sharon too. Mm-hmm. When, as you mentioned, Sharon was disengaging, withdrawing settlers from Gaza. And it just made me think about a kind of rule in Israeli politics, which is that you think that people store up credibility as uh, figures associated with the right, with Likud, with, with nationalism, with being a hawk on the national security issues. And you can spend a lifetime building up that bank of credibility. And the second you move an inch away from the shibboleths of the nationalist right, you are instantly discredited as a dangerous leftist. Mm-hmm. And Netanyahu himself is, is absolutely famous at deploying that rhetoric and constantly branding this coalition made up of parties that he was begging to sit with him, mm-hmm. Gidon Saar, Naftali Bennett, Lieberman, instantly saying this will be a dangerous leftist government. Uh, but it's just, it means there's so little room for any leader who does eventually want to have some kind of initiative with the Palestinians, because the second they even raise the topic, they'll be out there with the imagery, the kafir, the etc. to say, here you are, you're a dangerous leftist. It happened to Rabin, it happened to Sharon, it's happening now to Bennett, who, let's face it, doesn't have the kind of national security credentials either of those mm-hmm. two men, both former generals. So he's been the big player, Naftali Bennett. In terms of the answer to the question, you've, I think, answered uh, David Remnick's, we'll call him David from Manhattan, uh, who's written in with that, uh, or wrote, dialed in with that terrific question at the extent to which Naftali Bennett has changed. We should talk about the man, though, who has been the architect of this whole venture. And it is amazing because normally, and, you know, I'm bracing myself to try and explain this to uh, to Guardian readers in the coming hours, the idea that the person with the most seats and the one who put the coalition together isn't just, going to have Just send them government. to our episode 15. It's called Israeli Math and they'll get it. I promise. They'll get it. They'll get it. Um, I'll, 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 I'll append that with each <laughs> word. But the, um, yeah, Yair Lapid is the guy who put this all together um, and yet uh, is not, he's going to sit it out. He's under their agreement. He waits till he takes over as prime minister. How has he pulled it off to you? I'm waiting for you to say television people are the best people. 
<laughs> he's of course an former ex- newspaper columnist. Yes, and oh, former um, newspaper columnists are the best people. He's former. There's a little bit for you there, Leonie, and a little bit for me. <laughs> That's why you're looking. Is so there much. for both of us? <laughs> that could be a slogan next elections. Look, no matter what happens, uh, sworn in. If this government is sworn in or not, Yair Lapid is the is the clear winner of this uh, of this story. Of course, I mean, he kind of ditched the image that he had of you know. A sp- maybe spoiled, maybe kind of condescending, ex-television talent. And he's become, he's emerged as a leader. He acted brilliantly in the campaign, uh, in, in this election campaign, not attacking Netanyahu directly. We talked about this, but more importantly, he, come, he came across, uh, I could say differently from the average Israeli politician. He acted selflessly, as you said, and he sacrificed his own ego and said, I'm not going first. We need Naftali Bennett to go first. Uh, but also he did something a little uncharacteristic for an Israeli politician in that he played long term, right? He saw beyond just the next week or the next uh, uh, month. Uh, long term in general is not something that this country does well. And if you even see the polls this uh, last week, we talked about this. He is coming in within four points of Netanyahu. After this, essentially, uh, if you read the coalition agreement, he will become prime minister in two years. Don't hold your breath because I don't know if this coalition, if this government will survive a confidence vote in two weeks. But still, it's a it's a big deal for him. Yeah, I think he goes uh, uh, to prove the old dictum always attributed, I think, to Harry Truman, which is that there is no limit to what you can achieve in this town, said Truman, if you're prepared to give up the credit. And in Truman's case, it was calling his plan for reconstruction of Europe after the Second World War, not the Truman plan, but the Marshall plan. And that's what enabled it to happen. And you look at this and you think this is in a way, you know, the Marshall plan government, it's the it's 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 Truman behind, it's Lapid behind mm-hmm. it. But he's put another name and another face on it in the form of Naftali Bennett. I think he, you know, it, that enables him to run in, go into the next election saying, yeah. or not even having to say it, but being seen as the yeah. kind of adult in the and room. And remember, this is the second time he tried this, because the first time he tried it, he moved aside for Benny Gantz, right? Which failed, of course. But but that is already his second attempt of saying, I'm putting my ego aside for what I see as the good of the country. That will play pretty well with, with voters next time around, which could be, by the way, in a few months, right? I mean, if the, all this fails. Yeah, no, I think it's um, it's a real cr- credential for him uh, in the future that he has done this. And, and I agree with you, What almost whichever way it plays out. Now, the one other player in the drama, I've said just a moment ago that I thought he is in a way the author and founder of this coalition. I, I don't think he's out of the picture yet, is he? Oh, for sure. First of all, he's not going to, he's going to pull every stop he can and put pressure, especially on the rightists, right, on the Amina people. That's going to be phenomenal. We see these demonstrations uh, by Netanyahu loyalists. Let's put an understatement on that. Not ex- exactly expressing their um, discontent with finesse. We talked about this, right? This Shin Bedder increasing security around Bennett and other uh, people that they see as potential targets. This is going to get very ugly in the couple of days uh, leading up to this confidence vote. And afterwards, he's, as you say, if he becomes leader of the opposition, he's the best He's the worst enemy and the best enemy, right? Because he's the thing that keeps everyone together and the glue that's going to keep this coalition together. On the other hand, he's Benjamin Netanyahu. He's still the best political operative there is, and he's going to fight this government with everything that he has, with every arrow in his quiver. Yeah, no, that's a big thing. Um, meanwhile, there has been another election. With clear results that ended, that week. began and ended on the same day. My God, we produced that as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do not know. I can't even bear to think of what your work hours were like on this Wednesday when it all happened 
uh, and there was this big change. And I noticed outside the country some degree of confusion because headlines said Israel has a new president. Uh, and then meanwhile, they, a few hours later, they're saying still haven't formed a coalition. <laughs> Lots of confusion with that. But Israel does have a new president. The role is ceremonial, of course, but there has a few key political uh, powers which we might talk about. We um, looked ahead to this election in our conversation last week, and I mentioned that the lead candidate, and of course the man who uh, emerged as the really knockout winner, had appeared uh, in an event we held here in London to mark the 50th anniversary of the launch of My Late Father's radio programme. We talked about it at the time, you don't have to be Jewish. But our guest from Israel was none other than Isaac Herzog, whose father Chaim Herzog had been a regular on You Don't Have to Be Jewish. And um, in the course of very natural conversation, I must say, there was no prodding or pushing from me. He gave this endorsement to our show. And now you you have a weekly podcast with one of Israel's greatest journalists, Yonit Levy. It's called Two Jews and the News. I highly recommend uh, World Over to listen to it because it explains the new the new realities of uh, Jewish life around the world and, and with Israel. That's the next president of the state of Israel. I'm very impressive. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say Noch. He's now President Noch, <laughs> and he's a listener to Unholy. But no, we do think um, uh, that the Herzog election was a big event, partly because if uh, there is another election, the person who gets to issue the invitation to form another government, will that decision will fall on the new President Herzog's desk. And there is the question, which I'm calling the Gerald Ford question, of issuing a pardon mm-hmm. to the Prime Minister, to be the outgoing Prime Minister, if he is, that uh, Bibi Netanyahu. What do you think, from what you know of Herzog and how he won and everything else, do you imagine those, how he would, what do you think about how he would make those decisions? Well, first of all, we have to say he, the, the question of what kind of president you want to be, I mean, when you think of Ruven Rivlin, right, who's, who, um, wanted to be this beloved president. I think he was beloved by parts of, of Israeli society, but he also kind of set up a mirror in front of Israelis. Not everyone liked the reflection uh, when he when he did that. He was very worried about the w- road uh, s- Israeli society is taking. Um, what kind of president will Bougie be? Well, first of all, look at the way he was elected. A huge majority, right? 87 members of Knesset out of 120. This is the coalition that he kind of failed to put together when he was running against Netanyahu in 2015. Look, you know, politicians in general have all kinds of, I think, types of charisma. You have the large crowd charisma politicians, the Barack Obamas of the world, uh, maybe in a sense the Donald Trump, right, captivating a crowd charisma. But there's also the kind of small room, smoke-filled room charisma, when rooms were still smoke-filled. And and that is the kind of person that Bougie is, right? He can charm you in a one-on-one. That is what he did for diligently for months and months uh, to all members of Knesset. Remember, the, we had so many elections in the last two years that the members of Knesset kind of replaced themselves, so he had to meet a lot of people. So that is, I think that's what the, that's kind of the president he wants to become. He wants to be this person that is loved by all Israelis of all walks of life. And that kind of was a long, uh, convoluted way to read your question. Will he indeed, and that is a big question, will he indeed give presidential pardon to Netanyahu? I don't know. Obviously, his relationship with Netanyahu is much better, ironically, than the one uh, Netanyahu had with uh, Rivlin. I don't see him doing it. It's a very contentious step. You have to, he needs, the request will be give him a pardon before the verdict is in. I, I don't see that happening in such a kind of 
very it's a contentious move. The society is very sort of torn on this question here. I don't I don't see him doing it. Also, when you remember that Chaim Herzog, uh, Isaac Herzog's father, signed the most contentious pardon in Israel's history, it's a pardon for Shin Bet operatives charged with uh, killing Palestinian terrorists instead of arresting them. It's a famous case in Israel called, or in, inf- infamous rather, called Bus Number 300. This definitely would weigh on his decision-making. He'll be extra careful, especially when the Netanyahu case is not a case of an issue of national security. So Herzog Jr. will be quite careful due to uh, Herzog Sr.'s history. Yeah, I think the um, interesting thing about his presidency will be uh, something perhaps slightly different from Reuven Rivlin, who I think, by the way, is a very hard act to follow. I think mm-hmm. Reuven Rivlin was a voice of sanity often and of kind of empathy, human empathy. Uh, and and uh, there were a lot of moments where particularly he reached out to Arab citizens yep. of Israel. I, I, I think he did the job with, with, with some distinction. And I think um, it will be a hard act to follow. One potential area of difference might be that it seems, from his opening speech anyway, and other sounds he's made, uh, that uh, Bougie Herzog will, will try to be a president for the citizens of Israel, but also for the Jewish diaspora. Uh, you know, his current role is as chairman of the Jewish agency, which has a kind of global reach. And I think he begins with a lot of goodwill uh, and a lot of people who will be wishing him well. It really is always, has always been very important uh, to him to talk to diaspora Jews. I think that connection not only is the head of the Jewish agency, but it's something that he he, he focused on uh, for years. Uh, you know, we, we talked about this last time. Israel has kind of moved on so quickly from what happened only two weeks ago uh, uh, between uh, Hamas and Gaza and, and Israel. I think the fallout from that is still happening around the world. Yes, I would agree. I mean, that, it, it did strike me that, that it's 11 days and then Israel, in a way, you know, moves on to the next big drama, which has been obviously a change in government. And here uh, in the diaspora, I think it's not quite like that. They are, they, there is still been the fallout. Um, you know, the Community Security Trust, which monitors anti-Semitism and combats anti-Semitism, here in Britain, reports what it calls a horrific surge in anti-Jewish attacks in the past month, which they said surpassed anything we've seen before. 351 incidents between the 8th and the 31st of May. And so they and they say this happens every time, that every time there is violence in the Middle East, it, there is this surge in violence here. And I just think some of the intensity of anger and fury that this these 11 days stirred has shaken um, quite a lot of people, including those who themselves are angry at what happened and, and angry even at Israel's actions and the Netanyahu government's actions, which, you know, in Jerusalem, which kicked this whole thing off. And a lot of people are still sort of, um, you know, even however angry they are with that, they are really shaken by what they see in the reaction. So, for example, uh, you know, the big solidarity rally, pro-Palestinian rally in London, uh, the site of a placard which depicted, uh, you know, Jesus on the cross saying, don't let them do it uh, again, you know, and who's the them there? And, um, you know, it's not Israel or Netanyahu because they weren't around in you know, even Netanyahu wasn't around 2,000 years and ago. And he wasn't, even though he's the perennial, he wasn't around in the era of Barabbas and Pontius Pilate. <laughs> it's obvious they mean Jews. And it's, um, 
And there's been stuff like that, you know, where just at campus level, in workplaces, and that doesn't go away as quickly as, you know, it doesn't switch off the minute mm-hmm. there's a ceasefire. You know, you, you spoke of the way the Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, and eruptions ha- has sort of stoked the maybe anti-Semitism in Europe. We see that in the United States as well. And it's a question when we see parts of uh, the left in the United States, I would say the far left, with the anti-Zionist voices sometimes bleeding into the anti-Semitism is something that isn't, as you say, it isn't going away. We, we talked a lot about that problem. Uh, we heard Bill Maher uh, this week kind of defending Israel uh, in, a, in a pretty long uh, monologue, but, or more of a dialogue because he had guests, but let's listen to a little bit of, of that. As far as Gaza goes, um, it's, it's amazing to me that the progressives think that they're being progressive by taking that side of it, the Bella Hadids of the world, these influencers. Um, I just want to say, in February of this year, a Hamas court ruled that an unmarried woman cannot travel in Gaza without the permission of a male guardian. Really? That's, the prog- that's where the progressives are? Bella Hadid and her friends would run screaming to Tel Aviv if they had to live in Gaza for one day. Yeah, you know, he gave, that was part of it with, with Bella Hadid. He gave a whole sort of speech about how Jews have been here before anyone else and et cetera, et cetera, and they were not, they were occupied. But I think a lot of, uh, you know, larger parts of the Jewish community needed to hear that, someone sort of standing up. For, for their narrative. Yeah, no, I think um, they will. there'll be plenty of people saying, listeners to this, who think, hand the Mensch Award to him for the week because they <laughs> love it. And it, it's kind of therapeutic. You know, they had John Oliver a couple of weeks ago and now here's Bill Maher, you know, giving it back in the same sort of coin. You know, my view is always that these sorts of things don't really capture the extraordinary sort of nuance and complexity of the Israel situation, which the formation of this new government potentially just underlines again. Israel's a much more complex place than either the John Oliver yeah. rant or the Bill Maher rant necessarily allows. But anyway, it does bring us to our awards, and I think you have a nominee for chutzpah. Proper chutzpah nominee. Uh, it's because of a blog post from 2007 from uh, someone named Kamau Bob. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Then he was a research associate at uh, Georgia Tech, who has since then climbed up to be the uh, the corporate ladder to be Google's head of diversity. This is important because the post then was titled, If I Were a Jew, in which he describes how Jews should feel about the Middle East conflict. Then he writes, If I were a Jew, I would be concerned about my insatiable appetite for war and killing in defense of myself. Self-defense is undoubtedly an instinct, but I would be afraid of increasingly insensitivity to the suffering of others, etc. The post was removed, but I would say this. A, Google. You could have Googled him before you appointed him. And B, uh, not being the PC police, but putting a guy like that head of diversity is not exemplary. Exactly. Yeah. Of that was my rant jobs. for this week. No, that's very good. I mean, it is, you know, as always... And I wonder about this, by the way, that you and I often sort of see the humor in these horrible things that are said. I'm more and more convinced it's a kind of defensive mechanism, a kind of coping strategy. Jews using humor as defense mechanism? I wouldn't think that's a thing. Do you think that's a thing, But I think even you and me, you know, we think it's something that our ancient ancestors did back in Anatevka. I think we still do it, you know, that we somehow see the comedy in 
this guy saying these horrible things and being of all things head of diversity you know he couldn't be you know head of algorithm or something <laughs> he had to be the one job where you know where it's it's not right so okay well look let me go to our mensch nominee um i think um a deserving uh, winner this week is daniel lieberskin the f- world famous architect who um, famously was involved in uh, the uh, as master planner really for the post 911 uh, reconstruction of the World Trade Center site. He's now taken on the mission of the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, which, of course, unholy listeners will know, was the site of the worst anti-Semitic attack in American history uh, back in October 2018. Uh, and this week, uh, Daniel Lieberskin visited the site of the Tree of Life Synagogue, where that gunman uh, murdered Jews as they prayed and walked around and said he was listening for inaudible voices. There is a human sound that cries out to you. Um, I just think, you know, he's a world famous architect and it's such a good choice. It's a very good fit that he take on this really uh, important but also unenviable task. That's beautiful, Jonathan. Thank you. You always get the credit yeah, for ending on a high note. Um, so we shall end our program, which was chock full of Israeli politics next week. Uh, you do most of the talking and explaining. I'm not explaining this anymore. I'm done. I told yeah, you. Well, you're <laughs> going to be in Denmark. So we're going to be talking to you about Copenhagen. We're going to be talking to you about the uh, a large railway that links the mainland to various beautiful islands and the world's most admired restaurant. And that is when we have two Nords <laughs> on the fjords. But instead... You need to follow us at Two Jews on the News on Instagram. Just letters, no numbers. And uh, I said already, you've got to subscribe, you've got to follow, and you've got to recommend us to your friends. Uh, David Remnick and uh, President Herzog, President-to-be Herzog, have done that. Follow their lead. And, Yonita, I know you have some people we must thank. Our executive producer, Lior Friedman, and uh, Rom Atik, head of podcasts, and Omer Primat. And, Jonathan, don't try and build a coalition at home. It's not for amateurs. We'll, uh, we'll talk next week. We'll see you next week.